right, everybody, how we doing? Great. Fantastic. Am I on? I'm on. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here this morning. Um, if you're a guest, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad you took time out of your weekend to come celebrate with us and talk to us and, and, and be with us as we explore this relationship that we're having and that we, we grow in. We, we've, we basically have come to a place like this, and, and many of us have found out that each week that God is asking us to surrender more and more. And the more we surrender, the more He changes us. And the more He changes us, the more we realize that we're not in control. And so it's a great time, at least at the beginning today, to talk about sort of what's going on in our world. And I, um, I'm not going to go into this too much, but uh, we live in an incredible time as believers. Amen. We should be on our knees thanking God that we live right now. I mean, you talk about an amazing experience. God has provided an incredible time for us to demonstrate our faith to the world. We're watching what happens when a godless world realizes they're not God. When God allows something that they can't control to remind them that they need Him. There's only one reason why anybody on this planet gets COVID-19, the flu, H1N1, or any other illness or disease is because God allowed it. Not because He caused it, but He allows it. And He allowed it because it fits into His perfect will for His purpose and His timing. This is a perfect backdrop for believers in Jesus to demonstrate their faith and their trust in God. No believer in Jesus should be walking in fear right now. None. Safety is not the absence of danger, it's the presence of God. If you have faith in Jesus, now is the time to stop hiding. Stop buying into fear and live boldly for Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned. Concern is in the moment. Concern is, I need to do smart, reasonable things in the moment to keep from getting a disease, this disease or any other, and to keep from handing it, giving it to somebody else. Concern is, I need to wash my hands. Concern is, I need to help elderly people who shouldn't be out in public. I need to go shopping for them. Concern is, God, what do you want me to do in this moment right now to take care of people around me and to love people? Worry is transferring that concern into a future that hasn't happened. Christians are not to be worried about anything. Anything. Be anxious about nothing. But pray in everything with thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. And then there's a promise on the back end of that scripture in Philippians. There's a promise, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If you're not at peace, you're not praying enough. Because God promises it. Worry is the light on your spiritual dashboard that tells you two things. One, you're not praying enough. And two, you're not trusting God enough. Worry is God trying to wake you up to start living the way you say you believe. So now is the time to stay in prayer for our leaders, for people. But, but my prayer is that we will be praying most that people are really shaken up. 
that they'll continue to freak out. And they'll freak out so much they don't know what to do. And they'll finally look around and they'll see God's people going, it's okay. God's got this. And then God's going to open up a door for them to start thinking, wow, I want that peace. I want to know what that's like to walk maybe into, I mean, this isn't Ebola, it's COVID. But but I'm willing to walk into death for Jesus because it's okay. Now, with regard to our services, we will stay open every week. Okay. Now, you may not want to come. You may want to come or whatever. If you're watching online and you're uh, elderly or you're in one of the risk groups or, or you're taking care of somebody who is, stay at home. But let me just say this. If you're at home right now out of fear, stop it. Pray. The reason we will keep meeting is every time, this is a great example of this, every time something happens in our world, the first place we should go as believers is to the Word of God. And whatever the Word of God says, that's what we're supposed to do. Now I'm well aware that churches all over the country are not meeting this morning. Their decision, okay? But Hebrews 10.24 says, do not set aside meeting together particularly towards the latter days. Because you need to be encouraging each other. There's only one change we're making at Remnant as a result of this. We're changing the way we do communion. Okay, so starting next week, you'll get a little cup. It's like a little K-cup, like you're on an airplane. And it'll have a wafer in it, and it'll have some juice in it, and we'll do communion differently. Other than that, wash your hands and raise them up in praise and come to church. That's my message, and I think that's what God wants us to do. So let's talk about what we've been talking about, which is Gnosticism in the church. Uh, We've been looking at Peter, an apostle of Jesus, somebody who walked with Jesus, somebody who, who saw everything Jesus saw. And he's warning the early church that false teachers are going to come to church. And we've been studying this. This is week 10. And he's given us 24 characteristics so we'd recognize them. He's talked about how they're a threat. Last week we talked about how angry he is that people are going to come into the church and start lying. And we talked about how chapter 2 was his boiling point. And Peter was furious in righteous anger. And what we need to learn is that sometimes we need to be offended in God's name. And that we're to hallow His name and keep it holy. Keep it worshipped and don't let people trash talk our God. So as we begin chapter 3, we see Peter move from his angry moment back to his pastoral moment. He's moved from focusing on those who would attack the church to those who are going to be there to protect it. In fact, he's their pastor. It's what he does. 2 Peter 3.1. Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. I love the word beloved. I wish we used that word more often. It's so endearing. It's Peter's pastoral heart saying, look, I really love you guys. I want you to get this. People are going to come teaching falsehood. I really want you to get this. And it's particularly powerful here because Peter's in the last chapter of his second letter, which is his last letter. These are his actual final words. And he becomes pastoral and he says, look, beloved, this is the second letter I've written to you. Now remember that we spoke about how letters weren't easy to write in the first century. And I personally believe letters were really hard for Peter to write. 
Because I think Peter had a sort of a form of ADD at some level. I think he just couldn't sit still. He's so impulsive. Everywhere he went and did, everything was acting. He would act and then he would think about it. And just picturing him sitting down to write a letter reminds me of me sitting down at my child's or my uh, sister's piano recital when I was about six years old. I'd rather be anywhere but there. Peter says, look, friends, loved ones, believers in Jesus, this is my second letter to you. And it's important. And without saying it, he also says, this is my last letter to you. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He repeats his purpose. In both of them, I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. We've heard that before, haven't we? We heard that in the first chapter in 2 Peter <coughs> chapter 1, verse 13. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now notice that Peter, his focus here is not to remind us. His focus here is not just to remind us of truth, remind us of what the prophet said. He's not just into having you remember something. He says, by way of reminder, I want to stir you to action. You see, he's not saying, hey, I just wanted you to remember these things, and we all go, okay. He's saying, look, I want you to remember them, and because you remember them, you need to be doing something. This isn't about just remembering. He said, you should remember the predictions. You should remember the prophecies. You should remember the law, the commandments, the truth that was given to you by the apostles. It's good to know and remember these things. But Peter says, I want you to remember these things so you'll act. You see, because something's about to happen. And you can't sit by passively. This is so important. When people bring false teaching into the church, or when you hear false teaching, if you're silent, if you're passive, then you're going to struggle because what's going to happen is you're going to endorse them through your silence. And what Peter's saying is, look, they're coming, and I don't want you to just look at each other and go, yep, that's wrong. I want you to stop it. The law was given to Moses so the Israelites would know how to act. The prophecies were given to the prophets so that man would know how to act when the Messiah arrived. And the Messiah, Jesus, brought truth that was handed down through the apostles so that we would all know how to act. God's Word has never, ever been about information. It has always been about transformation. It's not a book that you read in order to just gain knowledge. It's a book that you read so that God can change you. And what Peter says is, you're about to be tested. Peter says, look, just like when I failed Jesus that night, I'm praying for you just like Jesus prayed for me. That your faith will be true. That you won't fail when the tile comes, when the difficult times come. Because Peter says, here's what I know about the future that you don't know. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What does Peter want us to know? First of all, first, above all else, 
before anything else, if you remember only one thing, if you get nothing else out of this entire letter, don't worry about number two on the list. This is number one on the list. Scoffers, not just false teachers, are coming to the church. Scoffing is America's new favorite pastime. It's arrogance and ignorance manifested as false intelligence. Let me repeat that. Scoffing is arrogance and ignorance manifested as false intelligence. Scoffers seem to be intelligent. They seem to have answers. They develop a following of people, but their knowledge is superficial. And when they are challenged about that knowledge on an intellectual basis, they're exposed. And when people try to engage them in the exploration of ideas, they don't have answers, so they just attack personally. They go on the offensive. Literally, they become offensive. So what's a scoffer? A scoffer is not just someone who doesn't agree with your ideas. They mock you. They ridicule you. They scorn the belief of others who disagree with them. You see, it's not just, hey, we disagree on this. You like apples, I like oranges. We just disagree. This is, no. Everybody should like oranges because I like oranges. And you're wrong, and you're a bad person. And if you don't agree with me, you're still a bad person. And I got a whole bunch of people that I've convinced are orange people. And if you're an apple person, there's something seriously wrong with you. And I said that for Lamar. If you're an apple person, there's something seriously wrong with you. Deep down, these people are very insecure about their ideas. And they don't want them challenged. A scoffer can't rest until they've demonstrated the foolishness of any idea that's not their own. A scoffer voices their disagreement, ridicules all who stand against them, and actively recruits others to join their side as if a whole bunch of people agreeing with them is the goal. And they do it all to keep from being exposed. They're not interested in truth or sharing ideas or learning something or exchanging information. There's no, there's no effort to even gain a new perspective to learn about other people, to appreciate their diversity and how they can disagree with you and still be great people, or to celebrate the freedom to express conflicting ideas. Scoffers attack those who disagree with them as if disagreeing with them is a personal assault on them. They're insecure and that drives their arrogance. Back in the 70s, I remember when I was a kid, relative kid, and you lost your argument with somebody. You didn't attack them personally. You came up with a your mama joke. <laughs> your mama thinks Taco Bell is a phone company. <laughs> but today, these responses aren't a joke anymore. They're vicious. Their words are like bullets. They, they desire to destroy your character, your integrity, and your self-worth. You can't, if you don't agree with me, there's something seriously wrong with you as a human being. Some of them will even go as far to suggest you shouldn't be here. Scoffing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the newscasts on every channel are full of scoffers. Pundits on both sides of the political spectrum mock, ridicule, and scorn the belief of anyone who disagrees with them. Scoffing, you see, is easier than learning. 
Scoffing is primal. It is a lower brain function. Seriously. It is part of your fight or flight response. If you can't come up with something in your cerebral cortex to come up with, your response is fight or flight. Scoffers are those who choose to fight. They don't have flight of ideas, they have fight of ideas. They are, and it seems, always looking for a new fight. Scoffers love to argue. They love to draw you in. They throw out their ideas like lures with a hook on them waiting for you to bite on it. It drives them crazy when you won't engage. The president, Congress on both sides, the media, chat rooms, social media posts are almost all full of scoffers. Few want to learn from an open exploration of ideas anymore. They're more interested in looking right and making everybody else look wrong. Right or wrong doesn't seem to matter anymore. It's just more important that you appear to be right and you can be more cruel to the other person who disagrees with you. And the first one to back down loses. The more you scoff, the more your ratings soar. Scoff, it, scoffing is the defense response that you have when you've reached the end of your intelligence. When you and I can't come up with a good reason for why we believe something, and somebody begins to challenge us to think about it, rather than admit and maybe look at maybe we need to learn something new, we just attack the character of anybody who disagrees with us. Scoffing is ignorance pretending to be intelligence. But there's one kind of scoffer who's worse than all the rest. It is one thing to be a scoffer about politics. But these people, Peter warns, are scoffers of God. Biblical scoffers say in their heart, there is no God. And they make it their ambition to ridicule and destroy people who believe there is. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You see, God hates pride. Look at his response to those who mock him. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgraced. Paul would later in Acts teach. And he would say, look, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You see, the prophets said that this would happen, that towards the end days and in future days, there would be people who even when they're told the truth, don't want to hear it. He's quoting Isaiah, one day, a day in the future, in your days, God says, I'm doing a work that you won't believe even if someone tells you. Isaiah described and Paul reminded us of scoffers that are here in our day. Toward the last days, people will come and they'll mock God. Be ready, he says. I want to stir you up. I want you to be ready for action because these scoffers aren't just coming here with political ideas. They're going to mock God. You can't just know it and expect it. They're coming. You have to be ready to do something about it. Don't just be stirred up. Be stirred up to action, he says. But notice something else that Peter tells us about these people. 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day, and guess what they're going to do? Shocking. They're going to scoff. That's what he says. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's weird. He says, look, scoffers are going to come, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to scoff. They're going to come in the last days. What an odd statement. Peter's saying this. These are people who are genuinely scoffers of God. But in the last days, that's all they are. Everywhere they go, all the time. It's not they do it once in a while. They are constantly attacking God. In the last days, these people will ramp up their attack on God and God's people. They not only have the potential to attack, they will be attacking. Peter says, scoffers will come scoffing. And we know because God tells us that as we get towards the end, they're going to increase. And they're beginning to feed off each other, and they're going to have traction for their stupidity among the people. 2 Timothy 3.1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And then what I love about Paul is he says something just a few verses later. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's a scoffer. They'll learn all kinds of things if it suits their needs. They'll go back and research all kinds of things to make their point. What they won't research is the truth of God's Word. Always learning but never gaining knowledge, never seeking truth. In other words, enlightened ignorance. But notice something else about these people. Peter adds that they're following their own sinful desires. You see, they not only teach this stuff, they not only mock God, they not only bring lies into the church, they follow their own lies. They follow their sinful desires. You don't just have to listen to their lies, you can see them living out their lies in their life. The ugly truth is they're driven by their own evil desires to oppose doctrines that should be redirecting them back towards God. These scoffers are not just questioning God's delay of promised events. They're really saying He doesn't exist. Or that He certainly doesn't exist the way Peter knew Him to exist. The scoffers are not interested in God's timing. They don't believe He's coming back because they say He doesn't exist. Remember, these are people that are going to come in the church and say, He never really had to die. He never resurrected. He wasn't ever really God. He was just kind of this spirit that looked human. They believed a lie, a worldview that does not include even the possibility of God not only coming to His creation, but being involved in His creation. The sovereignty of God in human affairs is unacceptable to them because they want to be God. And He's in the way. In fact, the reason they mock God is so they can keep following their own sinful desires. I mean, denying God makes no sense. I mean, really, when you think about it. Walk around. Just look for a while. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that somebody more intelligent than us put all this together. It's self-evident. 
No matter how much they don't want God to exist, He still does. And deep down they actually know it. But they can't surrender to Him, so they mock those who do. If God intervenes in human life, then one day God can intervene in their life. And essentially what they're saying is Jesus can't come back. You see, I can't create, or I can't have a worldview while Jesus comes back, because if He comes back, I'm not going to be in a very good place. And I don't want Him to come back. So there. (laughs) These are the people Peter's warning about. Challenging God, daring Him to do something about it. And when God gives them grace instead of zapping them, here's what they say. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers are going to come, they're going to say, look, He hadn't come back because He's not coming back. And every day that we live here and He doesn't come back, I'm more right. When they really should be going, "Uh uh-oh, we're one day closer. There has always been and will always be scoffers of God, people who think they know more than God, people who mock and ridicule God and anybody who follows Him. In Peter's time, this is what's weird. They expected things to continue the way they were forever. We have scoffers today, but we live in a different kind of world. Peter was dealing with people who said, nothing's ever going to change. The world will go on as it always has forever. But today, people seem to know that we're winding down to an end. People who know God and people who don't know God, things are winding down. Something's going on. Not sure this place is going to be around here forever. Peter's dealing with those people. It seems even the scoffers are beginning to realize that things are coming to an end. So they say, look, there's no God. Let me read to you something written in 1979 in a best-selling book called The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. As the 20th century approaches its end, the conviction grows that many other things are ending too. Storm warnings, hints of catastrophe haunt our times. The sense of an ending which has given shape to so much of the 20th century literature now pervades the popular imagination as well. The Nazi Holocaust, the threat of nuclear annihilation, the depletion of natural resources, well-founded predictions of ecological disasters have fulfilled poetic prophecy, giving concrete historical substance to the nightmare. Impending disaster has become an everyday concern. So commonplace and familiar that nobody any longer gives much thought to how disaster can be averted. People busy themselves instead with survival strategies measured and designed to prolong their own lives or programs to guarantee good health and peace of mind as long as they can survive. Scoffers of God have to depend upon the human race to save the planet. It's called humanism. Fastest growing religion in America. The human is exalted. Science will solve it. The human can solve everything. Human intelligence can fix everything. Or they have to stockpile every precious commodity, toilet paper, and hope to somehow survive this catastrophic event. Because the worst thing that could happen in a true catastrophe is to run out of toilet paper. (laughs) But see, here's what happens. Once you dismiss God, you're on your own. And we're seeing that worldwide right now. Once you dismiss God, 
you wake up with one very sobering truth. You're not God and you're not in control. And that drives people to stock up on toilet paper. (laughs) Fortunately though, God through Peter gives us a better idea. Peter says this, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What does that mean? Peter says, look, they've missed the obvious. They're saying God doesn't care what happens here and yet he's been active every moment that humans have been on the planet. He's engaged with us since creation. He's not passive. He's not disinterested. Just because he hasn't fried you yet doesn't mean he won't. Peter tells us that actually the opposite is true. There's never been a single moment on this planet that God hasn't been in control and active in our lives. Look, he says, everything you see, everything you've ever seen exists only for one reason. God spoke it into existence. He says the heavens existed long ago and then God decided to create and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and out of those waters God spoke and He created the earth. His Word, His spoken Word over the water brought the earth and all that we know into existence. And He says the earth was not just good, it was very good. But it didn't stay that way. You see, God didn't create the world and then just ignore us. He he didn't leave us to ourselves. When man rebelled, Peter says, God took the earth back to its beginning. The earth was formed out of water. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And when man rebelled, God took it back to its original state. The flood of water in Noah's era brought the world back to watery chaos. And what Peter's saying is, look, God's always been in control. He's always been active. Peter is so convinced of God's activity that he knew that these false teachers would come in and scoff at this. Because if you look at world history, what you realize is God exists, God cares, God is active in creation, and because of that we know He's coming back. God's Word brought all this into existence. He said, let there be light. He said, let there be an expanse of waters. He said, let us create man in our image. He spoke and things happened. In His perfect timing with His perfect voice. And then in God's perfect timing with His perfect spoken voice, God spoke to Noah. And God intervened again with His spoken Word and He brought a flood and He returned the world to its watery beginning like a potter reforming the clay, starting over. God reformed creation and took the world back to a watery blob, not to destroy it, but to create it again. And Peter says, look, he's consistently been speaking into his creation and he'll do so again in the future. The Word of God that created and destroyed the world long ago can and will destroy the world again. God did it once. He can do it again. He's promised to do it again, but not with water. By the same Word, the heavens and earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, look, remember, God made a promise. He promised He wouldn't destroy the world again. Do you remember the rainbow? Did you hear what I just said? See how easy it is to promote false teaching? 
I told you that God just promised that he'd never destroy the world. He never made that promise. He put a rainbow in the sky, but not to tell us that he'd never destroy the world. I hear people say it all the time. The rainbow means God won't destroy. No, that's not what it means. Scriptures don't say that. Let's read the Scriptures. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is a sign of the covenant I make between you and me and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy flesh. That's the promise. On the other hand, God absolutely, definitely, repetitively promises to destroy the world by fire at the second coming. You see, global warming was God's idea. But it's not the global warming that concerns people, unfortunately. Zephaniah 1.8, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 3.8 Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth will be consumed. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stubble. The day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. God's crystal clear. Just like the end came in Noah's time, the end's going to come. Jesus will return and He will bring judgment. He'll return to set things right. Do you know the only thing that's going to survive that test? We'll come back to that in a minute. You see, Peter tells us scoffers don't understand time. They don't understand God's timing. They think God is limited to the human clock and the human calendar. And Peter says, that's not the way this works. Peter says, look, do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What, what Peter's saying is, look, God has always been and will always be on His own calendar. And His calendar is based on eternity, not on our world. Man's calendar is based on our lifespan. God's going to do something. He must do it in our lifespan, we think. Our problem is we don't see time the way God does. God sees time eternally. We see time as the sequential movement from place to place, moment to moment. 
A happens, B happens because of A, C happens because of A and B, and we move through our lives in a series of moments. That's not the way God works. God's not limited by time. He sees everything at once. That's how He can look at you right now and see you glorified like Jesus. That's why He can speak potential into your life when you don't see any potential at all. God isn't limited by human time. He sees what you'll become. He sees eternity. He sees it all, everything at once. So Peter says, look, he's not slack in coming back. He never stated when he would return. His return is in the Father's hands. Even the angels don't know when it's going to happen. God's never late. He's always on time. Never delayed. Never out of control. Never angry without control. His motive is always love. For God so loved the world. It's because of his love for the world that Jesus hasn't returned. It's not that he's not there. He just loves more than you can love. Because if you were God, you'd already be back. And Peter concludes, the Lord has not returned for one simple reason. It's not yet the Father's time. And the reason it's not yet the Father's time is because he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish and that everybody should come to repentance. You see, what's really ironic here is what the scoffer is complaining about is the very thing God is offering them. Peter tells them, look, the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet, well, it's you, Mr. Scoffer. You're in his face saying he's not going to return, and he loves you enough to give you more time. You see, the reason he's hoping you'll come to your senses, because while you're scoffing him, he's loving you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, even those who are foolish enough to be scoffers of God. But, Mr. Scoffer, Peter says, God does have a calendar, and there will be a day. A day of God's swift judgment. And it won't be global warming, it'll be global incinerating. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. Catch what God's saying here. I created it all, and I'm going to destroy it like that. Peter tells us on this day, those who are in unrepentant sin, those who scoff at Jesus... Don't, don't, I worked on this all week, so catch it when it comes by. They will be incinerated. Incinerated. Thank you very much. I was really proud of that. Yeah, I, I worked on that all week. All right, so <laughs> scriptures say one day it's all going to burn up. Put your mind around that for a minute. Everything you've ever seen. Mountains, trees, oceans, the heavens, every animal, every insect, wind, sunrises, sunsets, the human body, gravity. I mean, this place is incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It's mind-blowing, the detail, the beauty, the specificity, the intricacies. And yet, God says, I'm just going to burn it up. Just going to burn it up. Think about that for a moment. Everything, Mars, Jupiter, your latest gadget, your phone, everything burned in the fire. Why? Don't miss this. Because God says, I love you. 
not this. It's you I've always loved. I created all this for you. Without you, none of it matters. The only reason the Grand Canyon exists is because I wanted you to enjoy it. If you're not here to enjoy it, what, what does it matter? You see, the reason the stars exist is I wanted you to look up and see my vastness. If you're not here to see it, it doesn't really matter. It was nothing for me. I can do it again. I spoke it. I can speak it again. The only worth reason the world, the earth, has any value to God is because it's home to those who carry the image of God. You see, it wasn't until God created Adam and Eve that He said it was good. And the moment they sinned, nothing's good anymore. And now everything at some point is going to have to be tested in the fire. Romans 8.18, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, what we forget is that the world is under the same curse of sin that we are. That when God said sin has entered the world, the world also put on a time frame. And God says that we're, we're, there's going to be a day, just like the day in Noah, when I wiped everything out. This time it's by fire, and this time it's all getting wiped out. Except, just like Noah, there are some people who are going to know me and love me and follow me, and they are the only thing that will survive the fires of end times. Paul says, not only have you been waiting to be restored to Jesus, but all creation has been waiting for Him to come back too. Man's fall put all of creation under a curse. And here's the weird thing. People who don't know God can still feel it. They feel that the world's headed to an end. They're trying in their humanism to stop it. We need to do this and this and this. No, we need to get on our knees and get ready. The only thing that will survive are those who bear the image and spirit of God. See, this world is all we know. And it's the most incredible thing that we know. Many here on earth worship the planet. They give respect and honor to Mother Earth. And they believe that nature is the most profound cosmic accident in the history of mankind. Which, by the way, only has a history because it was a cosmic accident, too. But God says, no, I can make another one, a better one. You see, the only thing of value on this place is you. I haven't come back because I don't want to go into my new world without you. I'm patient and I'm waiting because I love you. Even when you're scoffing at me, I'm trying to love you into eternity because I don't want you to miss it. I created you in my own image. I think there's nothing that grieves the heart of God more than to have to destroy something that was created in His image. God told us to take care of the world, not to worship it. 
once God's people are gone, nothing here matters anymore. It's as if God is telling us, even as he burns up everything we know, I really love you. This place only matters because you're in it. I created it for you. It displays my glory, my creativity, my imagination, my image. But it displays that to you. You see, the reason I created all this was to show you me. If you're not here, what difference does it make what I've created? I can do it again. I don't need to impress me. Without you, nothing matters. That's what God's saying. That's the message of end time. Without you, nothing matters. That's how much He loves you. He loves you more than anything you've ever seen in your life. Anything you've ever seen created. Scoffers are going to come. They're going to attack God. Their destruction's been planned for years, God says. Everything will happen in my timing based on my calendar. The world still exists because I decided so. Just like I spoke it into being, I'll speak it out of being. And I'll make a new earth, a heavenly earth, an earth without sin, without problems, with my people. I want you to go with me. You see, you still exist because I want you to turn to me. But there's a day in the future when my image bearers are going to be called home. And just like I destroyed with flood, I'll destroy with fire. He said, I'm doing a new thing because I love you. Can you perceive it? Let's pray. God, we totally don't understand how much you love us. We totally don't understand unconditional love. We look around our world and we're so blown away by what you've done here that we forget that you could just like do it again. That, that you're so powerful, you're so everything, you're so knowledgeable, whatever word we want to put in. And you did all this for us. It's incredible when you think about it. And then after creating all this, you tell us that you love us more than that. That we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That you sat down and created us just like you sat down and created the Grand Canyon. Only you say we have more value than anything you've created because we actually bear your image. So God, forgive us when we don't bear your image. Forgive us when we go around and act like the world is the most important thing to us. Forgive us, God, when we fail to realize that your clock is eternal, your home is eternal, and ours is supposed to be too. Help us, God, to be a witness in these times. Help us to know how desperately you love us. And then help us go share with the world that you haven't given up on us. You're actually being patient. Because you want everybody to come to know you, including the world's greatest scoffers. Thank you, God, for this message in this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you most of all for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.